Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. Thank you. I appreciate that. appreciate that. It is good to be here. Um, I'm usually at the 4 p.m., so this is a great experience to sneak up here in the morning and hang out with with y'all. I mean, y'all pack in in here, man. It's it's real. I'm also grateful for the body of Christ. Can we give it up for the body of Christ for the church? Yes. And, you know, one of the things that it can be easy to forget is that being a part of this body is a global reality. Uh, the the universal church, and to just sit and realize that believers all over the world are worshiping, you know, right now, you know, together. And uh, as Pastor Josh mentioned, you know, the fact that we have a sister church here uh, in Atlanta that uh, Pastor James went to go and minister to uh, Cornerstone, um, I think is a picture of that reality of the fact that when one part of the body is struggling, that we go and support them. So I just want to pray for uh, Cornerstone before we start in Pastor James. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for uh, the fact that you've placed us in a family that is broader than what we could have ever have imagined. We thank you for the church and how you uh, have put us there uh, to be a blessing, Lord. And um, just as this church has benefited over the years through other congregations investing in us, so, Lord, you call us to pour out um, as well. So we just pray for Pastor James, uh, even right now, that you would uh, fill him with your spirit as he preaches, uh, as he meets with the folks there at Cornerstone. And would you um, just give him a word that is exactly what they need to hear? And would they be encouraged? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And that's really what we're all about, um, you know, is reaching out and connecting. Well, one of the other things that y'all might not know about me um, is I'm a big MCU fan, Marvel Cinematic Universe. It started for me when I was in school, like elementary, middle, all the way up to high school. And uh, and so, you know, the grand finale of Endgame was very much uh, an exciting thing because I remember following that storyline when I was in school. And then phase four came. Phase four, they call it different phases, uh, each group of movies that come out. So basically phase four is everything that happened after the whole Thanos Infinity Stone series. And if I could be honest, it's been pretty disappointing. If I could be real with you, you know. Um, And... um, And in particular, uh, you know, the, what I think the, maybe the first movie, The Eternals, um, was like a, a really a struggle for me. And not only now, uh, there's going to be a little bit of spoiler here, but look, y'all, y'all had like a year, so I mean, <laughs> you know. But the idea is that uh, there's this godlike being who creates these individuals and gives them gifts, uh, powers. Uh, to vanquish evil and to help support humanity's uh, growth and development, which all sounds fine and good until they discover that that wasn't really 
the like the real truth behind it. That was with the story that they were told. But in reality, it was something a lot more <laughs> diabolical in a sense that he was this godlike being using them to essentially allow the population to get so large that he could create another uh, godlike being out of the midst of the earth that would destroy all the earth. And that gives them this challenge of what their purpose is. Now all of, all of a sudden they kind of are disillusioned with this purpose of the one that they had served and obeyed and now they have to uh, figure out what they're going to do about that. And I really, as I watched that, and, and not just that movie, not just a, but a lot of, it has a very common theme with a lot of things that you see in film and in just popular culture, which is essentially this question of like, how do we determine purpose, right? For some of y'all, y'all might remember The Matrix back in the day, a couple decades ago, and this whole idea of free will versus like destiny. Is Neo meant to be the one or is it just, is his choice to be the one? Um, and uh, if you just go on in all of these different ways, usually there's this idea behind it that, you know what, we can't really trust any other being to invest purpose in us. That's something that you have to decide yourself. You have to figure out yourself. And in fact, if anybody else tries to tell you that, they usually have some type of diabolical means in mind. And so this question of what are we created for is simultaneously um, something that is a major theme in the culture, yet something that is kind of unsettled. Because how can you say you have a purpose if you choose it? Like, is that really like consistent? And so, so throughout the time we wrestle with these things, and, and I, I want to submit to you as I kind of look into just the culture and the philosophies behind it, that there's a much bigger discussion and even debate at play. And so we're going to look at today this question of what are we created for? Because the Bible has some very specific things, and in fact, it's so interesting. One of the things in the Eternals, even the names of the deities and things that they chose, Tiamat is part of an old Babylonian story called the Enuma Elish, which essentially was a uh, another origin story that existed. Take, follow me. I'm going somewhere with this. And in that origin story, essentially, the idea was that deities, right, would fought each other in this cosmic battle, and out of that cosmic battle, the earth came into being. The reason why, and, and so as a result of that kind of uh, template, the idea for what, how did that affect us in terms of what we are supposed to do? We're supposed to dominate our surroundings and take power in whatever way that we can. That was the, that was the kind of takeaway, that's the action point. Because this is how the universe came into being, this is now what we are to do. Those who are the fittest survive. Sound familiar? Because that's kind of the picture behind the same thing with uh, Darwinianism. This idea which people take and go, okay, there was no real meaning behind the creation of the universe. It just kind of happened, you know, because some things just kind of collided together. And as a result of that, the real story is that this evolution of the species is really about survival of the fittest. And if you go back far enough, you start to realize that the immediate application point to that story was this idea of eugenics, was this idea of the races actually being prioritized over the others. And so someone looked and said, oh, look, that's why Europeans are at the top, because we were the fittest, and so we are the most evolved in our species. And so these things have real-world implications and consequences for how we think about purpose. So can we talk about purpose today? Yes. All right. 
Some say, so I'm going to give you the, just kind of the cultural lowdown. Some say we are made for ourselves. If you were to ask that question, what are we created for? Many would say for ourselves. And what that means is for any particular purpose that you choose. And uh, it's kind of a choose your own adventure. I don't know if y'all, some of y'all remember those books, right? And, and the interesting thing is this is not foreign to the biblical narrative and story. In fact, what we see in the New Testament is that the Apostle Paul interacts with people who also debated amongst themselves often about the nature of existence, the nature of the divine, what, what, what are we here for, all of those questions. Matter of fact, they had a whole place for it. They call it Mars Hill. It was in Athens, and Athens was the seat of the greatest kind of minds, at least allegedly, and the way that the philosophers would gather together. That's what Athens was known for in Greece. And so Paul is sitting there, uh, and, and we find him in Acts 16, 17. And this encounter, I would say, is very much uh, related to and gives us insight about how we encounter a society in a world who also debates about the nature of purpose and creation. And so look at what happens in Acts chapter 17, verses 16 and 17. And I'll kind of pause at different points just to kind of reflect on things. It says, now, while Paul was waiting for them, meaning the other disciples that he was going to be meeting with, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. I'm going to stop right there. So this wasn't on his agenda. He was just sitting, chilling. Maybe he was getting his, you know, frappuccino on just to kind of cool off in the midst of the day. And as he's sitting there, he's just kind of observing around him. And he sees idols, he hears people speaking about other stories and narratives about purpose, and it says that he was provoked within him. There was something about what he was experiencing and seeing around him that, that, that challenged him to say, I got to say something about this, because the city is full of idols. Is your spirit ever provoked within you because the city is full of idols? If you ever get... Like, just kind of riled up inside, like, wait, they're speaking things that are not fully true, ideologies that oppose Christ. But look at what Paul does. I love this. If, if the answer to that is just look at how his reaction is so different than oftentimes the witness of the Christian church in America. His reaction to being provoked was not condemnation. It says he reasoned with them. And he went wherever they were, where the synagogues, which means that these were Jewish uh, you know, folks and devout persons, or even in the marketplace, which the marketplace was where the Greeks would talk about these things. And the marketplace is near the Aragopolis, easy for me to say, Aragopolis, or something close to that. I don't think I quite hit it, but the other version of that is Mars Hill. He didn't curse them, he ministered to them. And that gives us a clear indication of what we should do when our spirit is provoked. But let's go on. In verse 22, it says, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, wow, that's a tough word to say, <laughs> said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. 
For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. You peeps, Paul's style is, is, is really thoughtful here. He doesn't come in and pounce them. It's like, y'all heathens, y'all going to hell. What are y'all doing out here? He actually builds a sense of rapport. He says, you know, I've been watching y'all talk. I've been looking at the things that you value. And as I, I, I observe, I see that you're very committed to these questions of ontological spiritual truth. You're, you're really wrestling with these things. You are committed to answering these questions. I even, you're so committed, you even said, okay, we got Zeus, we got Aries, we got Diana, we got, uh, you know, all of the, and you know what? We might have missed somebody. In case we miss someone, we got the unknown one. Just one that's just there, just in case we miss one. He said, yo, y'all are really committed to that. And so let me just tell you, that unknown one, let me tell you a little bit about that unknown one, because that unknown one actually unlocks the truth to all reality. They were very pluralistic. Uh, diversity mattered of opinion and belief, and the only thing that really was offensive was saying that you had the one true way. But even in the midst of that, Paul did not condemn, but he has a conversation. Even amongst the confusion, there is opportunity. And I want to encourage you, because I remember uh, being in college and you know, being in a secular university where there was a sense of clear hostility toward Christian faith and beliefs and all tied to histories of oppression and things like that. And I remember at one point being intimidated by that. And then after a while, realizing, well, wait a minute, if we're really the marketplace of ideas, that means all the ideas can have a place here to have their say. So let me have my say. Here's one more. So then he turns the corner in verse 24 and look at what happens. It's directly Now he goes into this issue of purpose. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Now he starts to lean in. And we, what we know about the geography, this is a real place, Mars Hill. And it was actually near the, probably the largest building in all of Athens, which was called the Parthenon. We style a lot of our banks right now. If you go to Wall Street and see the pillars with the like, triangle at the top, that's like the Parthenon. And so I can imagine him saying, and at the Parthenon, it was a temple where people offered sacrifices to their deities in order to try to appease them. And Paul points and he says, you know, the, look, God, the real Lord, he, he doesn't live in places like this. He doesn't live in buildings made by human hands as if he needed something from us. And I can see us, and you know, today, a lot of times in kind of sophisticated, you know, postmodern world, we think, oh, well, you know, idols and religiosity, that's just for other peoples. But I would submit to you, our city is full of idols. In fact, if you go to the history of the city and see where, when the Dutch came and, and settled and displaced the Native Americans here, they, it was all about business. 
It was like, yo, we're going, we can sell a lot. The reason why we settled here was because the harbor, the natural harbor was very deep and wide, and that was efficient for commerce. And so still to this day, you can go to Wall Street and be like, the God who made the world and everything in it is not driven by money. The idols are still around us. But look at the basic point that he makes is that because God made the world and everything in it, now look at how he changes the term from God in the first. He says, being Lord of heaven and earth. So what that means, there's a little nuance there. What he's saying is for him. So God, meaning like he's the one that created everything. Lord, meaning he's the master of everything as a result of that. As a result of his creating things, we now have a relationship to him that needs to care about what this God has to say. Or maybe, maybe, all right, let me try to do that again since I'm not sure if you're following. Look at what he says. He gives to all mankind breath. And so it's like, it's not about you giving stuff to God, you giving offerings and sacrifices so that this God can do what you want. It's actually about the fact that God gave you everything that you have. And as a result of that priority, that means that he has something to say about the way you live your life. You know, I was thinking about ordering some food yesterday, Uber Eats, and uh, then I looked at the bank account and I was like, okay, I'm gonna do Rasul Eats instead (laughs) of Uber Eats. And, uh, And the thing that's different is that like, They can charge you whatever they want at a restaurant because it's theirs and they made the things. But when I make my own food, I don't have to pay anybody because it's mine. I made it. And so in the same way, God is saying, I made you. So I have the right and the authority. And actually, it's in your best interest to know me because in knowing me, you actually get to know what you were here for. We are created by God for God. We're created by God for God. And if anybody has ever tried to operate some new device that was technological and you tried to do it and you were so excited, you opened up the box and then tried to plug stuff in and it didn't work, you know that what you ultimately have to do is go to the owner's manual. Because the owner is the one who made the thing and so knows how the thing is supposed to work and what it's for. We are created by God and for God. And in fact, according to Christianity, the world is not some chaotic, random place that we just happen to be in. But creation is a gift from God. Existence is a gift from God. And it's something that the designer who designed us in it knows what we're supposed to do with ourselves better than what we do, as a matter of fact. So that's the first point. We're made, we're created by God for God. But like Paul, we also encounter another prominent ideology among us. Others say we are made for self-realization. Self-realization. The sense of actualizing our, you know, who am I, right? And discovering that and the fact that that must be discovered from within. I must kind of look within myself to figure out who myself really is. And, and that's what the purpose of me and myself is. And this is a relatively new idea of ways of thinking about the human being. 
Like it's so like we hear it so frequently that we don't even question it. But it's like kind of only like 200 years old as a way of people thinking about themselves. Uh, I recently read this book. It's called um, What Are Christians For by Jake Meter. I, I really highly recommend it. This is what he says. And in the quote, it has the title of the book in it. Much of our recent history in the West is a protracted attempt to replace the, we- the weight and significance of love, rootedness, and neighborly affection with self-creation, self-realization, and self-actualization. See, Meter insightfully observes this idea of self-realization is new and that it replaced a more interconnected understanding of purpose. It replaced another way of thinking about ourselves that is deeper, that is richer, and that is actually has something to do with other people and even the divine, not just something that's supposed to be drawn out of myself. And I submit to you, one of the reasons why the generations are becoming increasingly, increasingly anxious and why anxiety is because we were never meant to bear the weight of figuring out my existence on an ontological basis by myself. In a room somewhere. Let me just go figure it out and figure out by the time I'm 18, what I'm supposed to major in, where I'm supposed to contribute to the world, what my legacy is supposed to be, and figure that out. And that's a crushing weight that we put on ourselves with the concept of liberating us from ourselves. So if that's not what we're created for, right, the sense of self-realization, then what? Well, Paul gives us even more insight in the next part of what he explains on Mars Hill in verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Oh, man, what Paul breaks down here is look at what he says from one man. He made from one man every nation of mankind. To live. And so, first of all, he's saying we we didn't just arrive here by ourselves. So what would make you think that you should be able to figure out your purpose by yourself? And in fact, that there's an interconnectedness. Somebody say interconnected. There's an interconnectedness that we have that transcends culture that transcends nationality that transcends race and that ultimately that comes to the fact that we are made in the image of God uniquely as individuals and no person has greater claim to that made in the image of Godness than someone else and in fact what happens when we displace God from the equation of who is the person that created us? What inevitably happens is people inject their own selves, their own culture, their own sense of ideas of what makes them better than other people. Yeah. And that's where we get nationalism and pride. That's where we get racism. That's where we get all the isms that essentially is humanity saying, I have a better way of being than you. And so Paul says, look, First of all, he made from every, from one man, every nation of mankind. And then he says, not only that, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. He says, how are you going to try to act like you know everything about what you're supposed to do when you didn't even determine when you lived? You didn't determine what decade you was going to be born. Every, oh, that's what, 
baby boomers. We're the best. You know, we're the greatest generation. Or, you know, Gen X. No, it's us. Millennials. Yo, it's us. Gen Z. You didn't decide that. <laughs> you just, somebody else decided that. You just were born in a certain moment. And so, like, what makes you think that that's something to get pride out of? But then he says, not only the when of your existence, the where of your existence, the boundaries of your dwelling places. Like, like God actually even the setup. You couldn't, you didn't have say if you were born in the, you know, the South, the North, the Caribbean. You know what I mean? The Europe, Africa. Like you didn't, you didn't weigh in on that decision, right? Like God determined what was going to be best for you. And all of these things contribute to this interconnectedness. And look at verse 27. He explains that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. This is the mystery and the beautiful divine tapestry that God weaves in each and every one of our lives. Do you remember? Like, according to the scripture, we don't even know who God is apart from somebody else sharing that with us. Like, we can't even tie our shoes and learn how to do that without somebody teaching us how to do these things. There's an immediate interconnectedness that we have, and as a result, and God designed it that way, watch this, because God himself is a community. Oh, yes, this is the, the ethical implications of the triunity of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, means that God, in his essence, he can be totally satisfied and still be in community. What makes me think I can be an individual and be good by myself? God don't even work that way. And so look at the dependence that we have. So so many factors outside of our control. And the thing that God said, now, this could be scary, especially if you've had the experience of having people let you down, being abused, being mistreated by those around you who sought to give you a, a, a purpose or meaning that sought their own ends and not yours. And I think this is the reaction of why people try to figure out this way in our culture. They'll say, yeah, just figure it out yourself. But the beauty that we have in God is that he doesn't use his power and his, his authority to harm us, but to help us. That's why the creation is such an important starting point, right? Because he didn't have to do that. God did not create the world because he needed anything. Sorry, Tiamat and, 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 and the Eternals and whatever was going on. Yeah, we needed the energy of the world. God ain't need nothing. He did it. So why did he do it? Because he loved. He wanted to express his love to others, to use that power for other people's benefit. And when we get there, you start to realize the greatest figures in human history stumbled upon what they set out to do because they, were, they had other plans in mind. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. talked about this all the time. He didn't set out to start a movement that was going to completely you know, uh, flip over the, the standards of segregation. He just was like, minding my own business. I'm a pastor of church in Atlanta, do my thing, you know, Montgomery, whatever, and be good. But the circumstances emerge that this problem happened with this bus boycott and they, they, they believed and they saw in him a leadership and an ability and they say, we need you to be a part of this. And so it was the combination of the circumstances and the people around him who essentially showed him the anointing that he had himself and invited him into a process. And so why do we think we're supposed to just find ourselves in a room somewhere and we're scrolling up and we're seeing what God is doing in other people's lives on Instagram and just starting to feel like, I got to make it happen myself. 
That's never how it worked. All right, let's move on. Others, many say we are made to self-actualize our potential. This is a little bit different than self-realization. Realization is about just kind of identifying or coming up with a sense of my own self-definition. Actualize is maximize myself, right? Like I need to figure out a way to leverage my strengths and diminish my weaknesses so that I can have the greatest impact in the marketplace or something nice and rosy like that. (laughs) Part of the trouble, as we just have already seen, that ultimately our accomplishments are not just our own, at least not entirely. The deception behind the pride that tells us that I can figure this out on my own also ends up saying that this is when people, you know, LLC Twitter or these other spaces where people just kind of like, this is what you need to do. Success in five easy steps. (laughs) Not like realizing that, yo, like if we were to peek behind the hood and start to understand your life story a little bit, we start to realize that didn't even work for you. Like that's not even how you got to where you are. You know what I mean? And, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, this multi-level, it's a marketing ploy to get you to invest in someone else so that they can start to build their brand. Now, does that to say that it doesn't matter the effort that we, of course not, it, it, it matters. But what it is also to say is that even the point of the effort itself is the problem. In other words, part of the angst that we have is that we feel like if I don't accomplish this by the time I'm 30, 40, whatever, then I have failed and my purpose is completely nullified. That's what we put, the weight that we put on ourselves, and we are attaching it to performance and things that have nothing to do with us. Those who graduated after the Great Recession know what I'm talking about. After being told for years and years, all you got to do is get a degree. All you got to do is get a degree. You graduate anywhere from like 2008 to like 2015. It was like there was no jobs out there for you. What's going on? But they told me. (laughs) I remember the same thing. Buying out. Be a homeowner. That's a great investment. Bought the the house at the top of the bubble. Had to sell it for a loss at the time it burst. There are realities that go beyond. So what does that mean? Does that mean I'm a failure as a person? Look at what Paul and how he responds. Verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own prophets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Now this is so deep for a couple of different Reasons. First of all, I just got to give you a little bit of context. In your Bibles, you might see these quotes there. And the quotes are there because it's not quoting Paul, but Paul is quoting their poets. You see, that first statement, in him we live and move and have our being, that is from Epimenides. These names in Greek, tough today. He was a poet of Crete in 600 B.C. So Paul is quoting somebody from like Shakespearean times in terms of art, in terms of distance. And he's saying, this is what your poets have said. In him, meaning this divine figure, we live and move and have our being. And then he goes on and, and then goes on and says, for we are indeed his offspring. 
Now he's quoting another poem. He's quoting Erastus, who was a Stoic poet in like the second century, third century BC. And this is what he's doing. He's saying, y'all, even in your own culture, are not that far from what you think. But I need to use this culture and these lyrics and these songs and these films to point you to a deeper spiritual truth. How many of you realize that your films that you listen to, the music that you listen to have worldviews? They are teaching you something. And you can either buy into what it is that they're teaching you, even when it contradicts what God's revelation is, or you can use that insight to then flip it and help people receive the real reality of truth of scripture. And that's where you're starting to cook with gas. Paul saying, I'm not going to quote to you the Old Testament because the Old Testament don't mean nothing to you. You're a bunch of Greek philosophers. You don't care about it. it don't, you don't know it. But what I am going to quote to you is what you know. It has been said, cash rules everything around me. Cream, get the money. Dollar, dollar bill, y'all. Your own prophets have said that. But I submit to you that actually Christ rules everything around me. Cream. And one of your other people said, life's a bee, then you die. But the reality is that's only because you don't have, you're not in connection with the divine truth of reality that being connected to your creator. Yes, you're right. Things do suck on this earth. There is injustice around you. There is a sense of where people who might betray you, who you thought loved you. But you know what? There's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Do you know how to engage culture so that you can see what it's saying and then help you and others see the truth of Christ behind it? That's what Paul's doing here. But the, de- uh, the and so the point that he's making is even deeper because he says, for we are indeed his offspring. So here's the point. What if the foundational basis for what you were created for wasn't about advancing your clout? What if it wasn't about what the zeros were behind your net worth? And what, was it, what, what if it was about even questioning that phrase to say that somehow my worth my esteem is tied into my bank account. But actually going deeper to say, actually my worth is tied in being a child of the most high God. Amen. That my worth and my value is actually not in a human doing, but being a human being. Amen. And that is foundational where we can understand what I'm created for. Because what that means is, regardless if I'm... Uh, just completely able to move if I become a paraplegic or if I have some type of opportunity that just somebody calls me up and all of a sudden overnight I become a success. None of that changes how God sees me because that's not what I'm created for. I'm actually created for spiritual intimacy. And that is something that can't be rocked no matter what happens in the markets, no matter what happens with my career, no matter what happens with the things that I strive to do and whether I succeed or not. It's something deeper than that. And that I would say that's the truth. That's what Paul's saying, that we're his offspring. Read Romans 8 and see what it means to be adopted in the family of God and how our worth is ultimately established by the fact that we have an inheritance that is greater in the spiritual world than something we could ever even pass down in terms of dollars and cents. All right, well, there's another thing that we say. This is probably my last one. Some say we are created to proclaim our truth. 
Raise your hand if you've heard this one. I'm just speaking my truth. Anybody heard that? My truth. I'm speaking my truth. My truth. My truth. And, (laughs) you know, it's interesting. To the extent that someone is talking about their experiences and drawing out of a sense of what they've come to learn as a result of some of their personal experiences, that's fine. But the danger that we've seen is that somehow this phrase is sometimes used as a defense mechanism to actually thwart you talking about the truth because it's my truth. And and what I decide and determine I want to be true actually frames what is meaningful. And this is, again, something that we've seen this week. Some of you may have seen Alex Jones or read the stories of him in court. For those who haven't had the displeasure of finding out who this person is, he's a uh, conspiracy theorist. He's an opportunist that uses people's gullibility to make money. And the way that he particularly has done that in one of the most egregious ways is by saying that the Sandy Hook massacre that killed 20-some kids was a hoax. That the people were, that ne- they, they weren't, the kids were never killed. That the um, parents who were weeping and, and so grieved about this were actually crisis actors that were paid for by the government because they want to take your guns away. This is what Alex Jones had been saying for years on, and making money off of it, selling merchandise off of it. Like this was a money making scheme. So he was in court, the, the family sued him. And at one point, the judge had to kind of adjourn the, uh, the jurors to be able to confront Alex Jones because he kept saying things that were not true in court, like committing perjury, essentially. But almost like the sense of like, well, you know, I'm bankrupt, so I can't really pay anything. And it's like, well, that's not true. There, you haven't been rendered bankrupt. You, you want to believe that. So listen to what she said, because I think this is so applicable. This is Judge Maya Guerra Gamble. Just because you claim to think something is true does not make it true. It does not protect you. It is not allowed. You are under oath. That means things must actually be true when you say them. It's kind of sad that you have to actually explain that to like a grown man in court. But here we are. And this is part of the devolution of a culture that has embraced the postmodern, you know, position that there's no such thing as absolute truth. I can just kind of make my truth. And the reality is that as important and valuable as your story is, right, the fact that God made you in a certain place in a certain time is important and precious. But that is not the determination of what is true or not. Look at what Paul says in verse 24. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. He says, okay, I I see that you're doing your best. You're trying to present a version of spiritual reality. You know, you got your incense. You got your, you know, your stones, your gems. You got whatever, your horoscopes. But what you don't know, what you're proclaiming out of ignorance, I'm telling you this is not the way. I'm telling you, because how can Paul have that authority? Because he was also persecuting the church. And then one day, as he was going into the road of Damascus, Jesus knocks him off his high horse and says, why are you persecuting me? And, and reveals himself to Paul. And on the strength of that realization, says, this is what I'm sending you out to do. 
And this is why our own testimonies are so important. Has God ever knocked you off your high horse when you thought that you were the truth? You thought that you were all that in a bag of chips and God had to show you and remind you, you have fallen short of God's glory. You're not who you're supposed to be, but God being rich in mercy saved you, not because of the works that you have done. That's our testimony. We don't come out of a sense of arrogance, but we are created to proclaim the truth. That's part of the story. It's not just our truth. It's his truth. And that truth is the one that's life changing. That truth is the truth that transforms. And because of that, we're created to be coming attractions. One of my favorite verses, Ephesians 2.10, says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand. Somebody say beforehand. Beforehand, beforehand that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship. The word in Greek is poema. He says we are his poem. You're God's 16 bars that he put in the cipher and said, let me see what I can show and how I'm going to reflect my glory through your particular story. That's who you are to God. And he says, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You have been given a sense of purpose. You have been given a sense of destiny. And it's one that is meant to give you clarity about who you are, not to take you away from the things that are in your innermost heart that God has created you uniquely to do. And I think that when we start to see the vast expanse of that truth, we start to appreciate art and stuff better. You know, a few weeks ago, a trailer for Wakanda Forever came out. Anybody see that? Black, the sequel to Black Panther. And while I had walked away from the MCU after my frustration with phase four, when I saw the trailer, I was back (laughs) immediately. But, and here's why that matters. Because there was something that that film did in touching into the fact that the representation matters, right? That, That who can be heroes can be the Dora Milaje with their fierce selves and spears and people from the continent with who are melanated can also have a story to tell. We are all created with a purpose to change the world. But how we do that and what that looks like means being connected to the ultimate one. And that's a journey. You're not gonna figure that out and we are all going in our different paces in the race. Some run faster than pull a hamstring and got to get healed. Some are just slow and steady, run to the race. Some are walking. Some are rolling in a chair. But wherever you are, some are being pushed by others. But that is what it looks like to make it through this race. That's what we're created for. And when we understand that we were created by God for God, that spiritual intimacy matters more than what I can do for him. That we are made for each other. We weren't meant to do this alone, but we were created to do this together. When we start to realize those things, then we can start to understand what we're really put here for. I wanted to encourage you to cause before we wrap up. One, this really connects. This is why I'm so excited to be connecting and partnering with Steve Cancer, Elder. 
for this Discover Your Calling workshop on Saturday. And I really want to encourage you to be there. We're going to have a lot of assessments and we're going to just really be connecting and helping people work through uh, your gifts and abilities and your story and connecting that to purpose. Because we all can use that help and support. It's not, there's no shame in not having that figured out, no matter how old you are. So we encourage you to be a part of that on Saturday. But then lastly, like I said, regardless of where we might be with our careers or our sense of even spiritual gifts and knowing what they are and using those, that the ultimate goal is intimacy with God. We're created by God for God. And that intimacy is why Jesus left behind this practice and this process of communion. On the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and broke it. And he said, this is my body. And by consuming this, it's a picture of the fact that I am faithfully present with you. He said, this blood, this is the basis of the new covenant. It's, it's not based on what you could do. It's based on what I've done for you. And so we're going to partake of that communion as a reminder of the fact that, can you um, pass me one of those? Thank you. That, uh, that this is not about what I can do and that my worth is based on that. But it's based on what Christ has done for us. So if you take the wafer and break it. I'm sorry. It's underneath your chairs if you're looking for the, uh, thank you, communion elements. Uh, you should find it underneath your chair. If it's not, just slip up your hand. But we do this as a reminder of the fact that this is a counter narrative to what the culture tells us that our worth, our power, our identity, what we're created for comes from. And he took this and he, and he said, do this as often as you eat in remembrance of me. And they ate. And then he took the cup. He said, this represents the blood of my body. Pour it out for you. And then he said, I won't drink this again until we do it together in heaven. And that's the promise that this isn't the end, but we will see our Savior again. Let's drink. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have reminded us that we're not created to build our profiles, that we should not be discouraged if we are not where we thought we would be in our careers or in comparison to other people that we know, classmates and the like, but God, that you've created us with a divine purpose. In you, we live, we move, and we have our being. You've adopted us into your family. And it's when we stay rooted and grounded in that truth, can we truly know who we are because we know whose we are. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. 
We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at bridgechurchnyc. Our website is bridgechurchnyc.com. If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you and we hope to see you soon.